Let's pray, shall we, as we turn our attention now to God's Word. Heavenly Father, we just thank you and we praise you for this time of worship that we've had, this time reading your Word. And Lord, we pray now for your Holy Spirit to be at work in each one of our hearts. God, that you would bring conviction, encouragement, growth, and strength in the faith where we need it. Lord, would you grow us and strengthen us today through your word, by the power of your spirit. Lord, we ask for that. We pray for that with confidence. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it was, um, we were gone last week, and uh, it is great to be back. We were gone on the church camping trip. Uh, this is a picture of us uh, worshiping the first night on the church camping trip. Uh, we had such a blast together. There are tons of things to do with the camping trip. We had a fun time at the beach. There's horseback riding. Kids went rock climbing. Even in the rain, we made the most of it. On Saturday, it pretty much just rained all day, nonstop, without end. <laughs> just raining. But I will say that when you're camping, there are those moments, especially in the rain, when coveting becomes an issue. Your stuff is all wet, and you look over at the RV parked next to your tent that is leaking. You say, oh, wow, the walls of your RV expand. It's basically a three-bedroom house. It's amazing. When that happens, you, you start to sort of reevaluate your life. No, you start to... You start to reevaluate your, your approach to camping, at least. If only we had a camper, we'd be warm and dry right now. Well, we are swimming in a culture of covetousness. And just like a fish in water, we don't really notice. Our entire commercial economy is built on... Coveting. Advertising exists not only telling us to have whatever we want, right? But to want what we don't have and to be dissatisfied with what we do have. And adding to our coveting and our discontent is this blurring of the lines between needs and wants. Everything is presented to us as if it's a a need, something we can't live without. I gotta have that. I need one of those. Coveting is rampant in our culture, so it's hard to keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, Hebrews 13, 5. But that's exactly how God calls us to live. Turning your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 5, today we're looking at the 10th commandment, we are finishing up our series that we've been in, uh, going through the Ten Commandments, and today we're looking at the Tenth Commandment. One of the principles that we've seen as we've gone through uh, for understanding the Ten Commandments is this two-sided coin rule. So wherever there's a, a duty or, or a sin that's forbidden, there's a corresponding virtue that's required. And so with the Tenth Commandment, we see it forbids coveting and it requires contentment. So the message for us today is do not covet, rather be content. 
Be on guard against all covetousness and be content with what you have. We're going to try to answer three questions today. What is coveting? What is contentment? And how do we avoid coveting and learn contentment? And I want to spend hopefully most of our time on that third question. So first, what is coveting? The 10th commandment forbids coveting. Deuteronomy 5.21 says this, look there with me. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant or female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. The coveting has to do with desire. We can see that in, in the text here. The 10th command makes explicit what all the others just implied, that God commands both inward and outward obedience. So that means we can sin in our thoughts and in our desires, as well as in our words and in our actions. Coveting, then, can be defined like this. Coveting is an unlawful desire, either because you want what belongs to someone else or you want what God forbids. It's always connected with envy, with discontent, and with ingratitude. Now, it's easy to to see this in the selfishness of of little children when they covet a toy that another kid is playing with. They're happy with what they have until they look over and they see what the other kid has, and then what they have is suddenly junk, and they just want that other toy. And so they usually just go over and try to take it for themselves. That's easy to see in children. Adults are more subtle, but we're no less guilty. Coveting is desiring what someone else has for yourself. Their spouse, house, yard, car, camper, vacation, success, looks, you name it. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Uh, Look at her. Why can't my wife be more like her? Why can't my, my husband be more like him? I'd be happy if I would have married someone like that shall not desire your neighbor's house or field. Our house is too small. If our house was just a little bit bigger like theirs, I'd be happy. Do not covet anything that is your neighbor's. Man, my car is lame. I want that guy's sweet Jeep with the big tires on it. If only I had a girlfriend. If only I was married. If only we had kids. If only we had a house. If only our house was bigger. If only I had a better job. If only I was retired. If only I was smart like him. If only I looked like her. If only I had his uh, athletic or artistic ability. Coveting lives in this world of if only. If only I had X, then I'd be happy. Then I'd be satisfied. Then I'd be content. We see this with Eve in the garden. Before Eve took the fruit, she coveted it, Genesis 3, 6. She took this fruit to get something that she was not intended to have. She was not satisfied with what God had given her, and she wanted more. She desired what God did not give her. She coveted this the knowledge and, and being like God, and she thought that having that would satisfy her. She was dissatisfied with God's will for her, and that led her to disobey. And that's key because we're going to see that contentment is being satisfied with God's will. So coveting is an unlawful desire for something, either because it belongs to somebody else or because God forbids it. But what isn't coveting? 
the 10th commandment does not forbid all desire or longing or thought of having something good or better. It doesn't forbid having hopes or dreams for your future or appropriate ambition. It's okay to desire to be married and have children. That is a godly desire. It is okay to want to work hard and have a home and provide for your family. Those are godly desires. Coveting has that twinge of envy or jealousy mixed into that desire, that discontentment. So when those good desires are mixed with jealousy and discontent at your own situation, then that's when it slips into coveting. The problem isn't having desires, but desiring the wrong things or desiring good things in the wrong way. And since the fall, humans have been coveting. Achan coveted some of the devoted things leading to Israel's defeat at Ai. David coveted Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, leading him to adultery and murder. Ahab coveted Naboth's vineyard, leading to false witness, murder, and theft or stealing. Demas, in love with this present world, abandoned Paul and most likely the faith, 1 Timothy 4.10. Coveting is serious because it leads to so many other sins. It's why James says each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire and desire when it's conceived gives birth to sin and sin when fully grown brings forth death. You desire and don't have, so you murder. You covet and can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Coveting is enmity with God. That's why when the prophet Nathan comes and rebukes David for taking Bathsheba, he says, by this deed, you've utterly scorned the Lord. You remember how Nathan confronts him? He comes to David and he tells him the story about this rich guy who has his abundance of sheep. And rather than killing one of his own sheep to, to provide a meal for a guest, he goes to this poor man who has one little ewe lamb and he kills that lamb and serves that for the meal. And David hears this and he's furious. And then Nathan says, you are the man and not in a good way. <laughs> like, you did this exact same thing when you took Bathsheba for yourself. And God says to David, I made you king in Israel. 2 Samuel 12, 7, I gave you a kingdom and wealth and so much more, and yet David was not content with what God had given him. That's precisely the moment when Nathan says, in this deed, by this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. Coveting is to scorn the Lord. It's, it's a failure to believe that God is good enough, strong enough, wise enough, to care for us. It expresses dissatisfaction with what God has given and how much more we think God owes us. That's why Paul equates coveting with idolatry. Coveting is idolatry. Ephesians 5.5 5 and Colossians 3.5. Coveting always leads to breaking the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. God says, worship me alone. Make me first in your mind's attention and your heart's affection. We can't serve God and mammon. We have to pick. And coveting is idolatry because it's setting our heart's affection on something, and then that thing takes the place of God. 
That's what happened with Eve. Eve coveted, but at the bottom, she wanted the fruit and what it could give her more than she wanted God. But that's always what's happening when we covenant, covet. We make a, a God out of our desires. So it should be a surprise to us then when a society rejects God, that covetous desire then becomes the prevailing ideology of that society. That's exactly what has happened in our own day. There's a radical inward focus. Each person seeks meaning and fulfillment by expressing their own desires. Carl Truman talks about this in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It is well worth the effort to read that book to understand how did we get to where we are today. Most Christians don't see coveting as a big deal. We put this on the list of the small sins, but Paul puts this in the list of sins that shouldn't even be named among God's people. Paul says, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Ephesians 5.5. Coveting brings God's wrath. Verse 6. It's dangerous because it leads us away from God and into all kinds of sin. Coveting is, is the root of every sin against our neighbor, and the idolatry in it is the root of every sin against God. It's impossible to covet and at the same time love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. So far from being some kind of afterthought at the end of the Ten Commandments, the Tenth Commandment is a fitting summary of all of them. It's a fitting conclusion for all of them. Coveting is an unlawful desire for something, either because it belongs to someone else or because God has forbidden it. Ultimately, it's idolatry, and it keeps us from the kingdom of God. The good news is that there's forgiveness for sin and freedom from this sin through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? And Jesus died in your place for your sins, for all your coveting, your envy, your jealousy, your discontent, and your ingratitude, everything connected to this, paying the penalty that you deserve, the wrath that you deserve for your coveting. He paid that penalty for you. And he rose again, conquering sin and death so that we too might walk in newness of life, so we could be free from this coveting. Because coveting is idolatry, the solution is a life lived heart and soul in the satisfaction and enjoyment of God and in the blessings, the spiritual blessings that he gives to us now and in heaven. That's the solution. To do that, you have to first be reconciled to God. You have to have relationship with Jesus Christ. So turn to him in faith. Come and be forgiven and free from, content, or from coveting and find contentment. But that leads us then to our second question. What is contentment? The 10th commandment requires contentment, but what is it? How should we define it? In reading uh, and studying on contentment this week, I read at least, at least six authors who all referenced the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs and this book that he wrote, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. So I thought, with this many people referencing this book, the book must be awesome. And it is. It's not big, but like all Puritans, it's deep. And I would definitely recommend picking it up and reading it. The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. 
So I'm indebted to Burroughs and also to Doug Wilson's wife, Nancy, and her book, Learning Contentment, which we have on the resource table if you want to pick up a copy of that. Both of these uh, authors, I'm I'm indebted to them in, in helping to define what contentment is. Like coveting is a, is a heart issue, contentment is a disposition of the heart. So we can define it this way. Contentment is being deeply satisfied in God and his will in all circumstances. Or, as Burroughs puts it, God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. We see this in Paul's life and in his teaching. Remember when Paul visited Philippi, with Silas and Luke in Acts chapter 16. They went in and they preached the gospel like always. The Lord opened up Lydia's heart to believe. But there's a problem when Paul cast a demon out of a slave girl, if you remember the story, cast a demon out of a slave girl, ruining the fortune-telling business of her masters. They were ticked off because they couldn't make their money anymore. So they seized Paul and Silas, and they brought them before the magistrates, and they accused them of disturbing the peace and breaking the law. So the magistrates ordered that they be stripped of their clothes and beaten with rods. Now, this is one of those places in Scripture where we need to just slow down a minute and think about that. Beaten with rods. I'm going to do an object lesson this morning. Um, Pastor John, no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Imagine this is your body, right? And people are beating you with rods. Look at what the text says. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, putting their feet in the stocks. Acts 16, 22 to 24. Think about this. Imagine what this would have been like. Your clothes are torn. You're beaten. You're bloody. You're bruised. You're in pain. You are hurting. And you're thrown in jail. And then we we read the most remarkable thing in the very next verse. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Verse 25. That's a picture of contentment. That's being deeply satisfied in God and his will in all circumstances. So much so they could pray and sing hymns and worship after being beaten and thrown in prison. Of course, we know Paul suffered greatly for the sake of Christ's name, just as Jesus told him he would. He suffered imprisonments with countless beatings, often near death. He was whipped five times the 40 lashes minus one. Three times he was beaten with rods. This is one of those cases. Once he was stoned with rocks and left for dead. They thought he killed him. Shipwrecked three times in constant danger and toil with sleepless nights, hunger, often without food, in cold and exposure. This is all coming from 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three to 27. Now, after all that, Paul finds himself in prison once again, and he writes a letter to the Christians in Philippi, the very same city where he was beaten and imprisoned and where he was singing. He writes them a letter, and this is what he says in it. He says, I have learned to be content in whatever situation I'm in. I know how to be brought low, And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ or through him who strengthens me. Philippians 4, 11 through 13. 
it's clear that his contentment was not found in his possessions or in his prosperity. He was content even when brought low in hunger and in need, even when he's beaten and imprisoned. You know what this means? It means you don't have to wait for your situation to change for you to be content. Having things was not the source of his contentment. God was. He said, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The context of this often abused verse is the ability to be content in all circumstances. That's the strength that God gives. Christ is the real source of contentment comes from serving and being satisfied in Jesus Christ. The secret to contentment is being so satisfied with God, so satisfied with God, we are able to accept whatever he has or has not provided for us. Paul's content because he trusts no matter what God assigns to him, God is also going to give him the strength that he needs for it. Contentment is being deeply satisfied in God and his will in all circumstances. Now, trying to find contentment in this world is like a hamster running on a wheel. Yeah, lots of energy. Wheel is always turning. It's spinning, but he's not going anywhere. If you want contentment, you got to get off the wheel. Contentment is not found in the things that this world has to offer. We cannot serve God and mammon. We have to choose. One offers real satisfaction and contentment. The other only offers the illusion of it. Can only be found in relationship with God and trusting his wise and fatherly providence over your life. Paul was content because he knew that his life, with all of its seasons and circumstances, big and small, are in the hands of God who works all things according to the counsel of his will and who makes all things work together for the good of those who love him. Paul was content because he was deeply satisfied in his God and in God's will. Contentment that comes from external things is not going to last long, but contentment that comes from within from a soul that is satisfied in Jesus Christ, it cannot easily be taken. That's true contentment. What isn't contentment? I'm indebted here to Jeremiah Burroughs, again, who gives three things contentment is not opposed to. First, contentment does not mean that we don't have a sense of our hardships. Paul felt hunger. He felt pain. He knew what it meant to be in need. When God gives us a cross to bear, he doesn't ask us to call it a couch. He doesn't doesn't tell us that we're supposed to pretend that it's not a cross. You can still lament and be content in God's will. Second, contentment does not mean that we don't take our situation to God or to our friends for help and comfort. God invites us to cast our anxieties on him because he cares for us. And Paul was praying in his difficult situation. We can unburden our hearts to God in faith and submission to his will. We can share our situation with our brothers and sisters in Christ, seeking prayer and comfort and encouragement from them. 
Lastly, contentment does not mean that we sit and do nothing. We can seek help. We can use any lawful means to change our situation or alleviate our suffering. So long as we are seeking that help and that change in submission to God's will, trusting God to deliver us when he wills and how he wills. That's not opposed to a contented spirit. I want you to notice here one last thing. Paul had to learn contentment from God. Contentment is something we have to learn. And that leads to the third question. How? How do, we, how do we get to the place? How do we get to the place in our Christian life where we can say with Paul, I've learned to be content in whatever situation I am in? I think all of us want to learn the secret of contentment as Paul did. Amen? Like, I want to know, how did you do that? So this is the question. How do we learn to be content? I want to suggest four things. There are other things that we could talk about. Four things that we can weave, that will weave and work together. And all of these things are dependent on faith. The primary application here is not go and do this action. It's believe these truths, okay? This is primarily a work of faith to learn contentment. First, it's keeping the right perspective. To start with, the Bible says this, Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into this world, and we can't take anything out of the world. But if we had food and clothing, with these we will be content. This is 1 Timothy 6, 6-8. through So this is what Paul says. You should have noticed the perspective here about material things. It's based on birth and death. You didn't bring anything into the world. You're not bringing anything out of the world. You cannot take anything with you. That's the perspective that we need. What that means is accumulating more stuff here does no ultimate good. So Paul says, if you have food and clothing, with these we will be content. That's the bar. (laughs) That's the bar for contentment. Do you have food and clothing? You have enough to be content. Jesus says, as he warned, take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You see, coveting falsely believes that having worldly goods brings the good life. That's a lie. That's not true. The truth is, is that life is found in Jesus Christ. He is the life. True life is knowing God and his son. John 17, verse 3. Christ is your life. Colossians chapter 3, verse 4. Christ is your life, not stuff. That's the perspective we need. To the extent that the things of the world pull us away from serving and finding satisfaction in Jesus Christ, they pull us away from true contentment and true life. But there's more to keeping the right perspective. You and I need to learn how to read the story correctly. As Pastor Rob once said, we can't judge God by the middle of the story. We judge God by the end of the story. That's what Asaph did, the psalmist. He was struggling with uh, seeing how the, the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. He said, man, I'm trying to 
understand, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed a wearisome task. Like, I don't understand. Why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? I, I couldn't understand until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. In order to understand this, we have to see the end of the wicked, the end that God has for his people, for Christians. That's why when he gets to the end of the psalm, he says, whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful. But for me, it's good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge. Amen? That's the perspective that we need to have. Paul kept his focus on heavenly realities. He said, so we don't lose heart, though our outer nature is wasting away. Our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction, read shipwrecks, beatings, stonings, whippings, Lack of food, cold, exposure, hunger, prison. Read that here. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, things that are eternal. That perspective kept his sufferings, his disappointments from stealing his contentment because he was satisfied in God. Learning contentment requires keeping that perspective. Second, learning perspective requires trust in God's promises. God's promises are the only foundation for building contentment. So look at what, what the author of Hebrews says, Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. It says, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Discontent comes not only from wanting what you don't have, but also from not wanting what you do have. Notice there's two commandments in these verses. Number one, keep your life free from the love of money. Don't covet. Number two, be content with what you have. So God gives two commands. Be content with what you have. Why? Because God promises, I will never leave you or forsake you. Do you see God? God gives this command to be content, and then he supports it with this promise. Our contentment is not, it's not based on the security and comfort of having enough money or enough things. Our contentment is based on the sure promise of God's unfailing presence and help always. That's the source, the ground of our contentment. So we can say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? No matter what situation you are in, whatever your situation, you can take courage because God is with you to strengthen you and help you. That's the promise that you rest on, you stand on by faith. You trust that. Paul learned to be content. He learned to be content by resting on the promise, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
And that includes every promise of God's all-sufficient grace to supply what you need. And there are many of them. So you can say with Paul, whatever happens, I will be content through Christ. He's my sufficiency. As Burroughs puts it, though I have not outward comforts and worldly conveniences to supply my needs, yet I have a sufficient portion between Christ and my soul abundantly to satisfy me in every condition. Oh, I want that. If you want that, if you want to learn that, it comes by trusting the promises of God, just as Paul did. The last promise is for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. God's working all things together for your good. Maybe not your immediate good, but definitely your ultimate good. To learn contentment, we have to firmly believe that God is good, even in our suffering. Even our suffering serves his ultimate good purpose. So we learn contentment by standing on these these three great promises. Notice what these promises do. They teach us to take our eyes off of our circumstances and to fix them on Christ. That is how we learn contentment. They teach us to rely on him. Third, we practice gratitude. Complaining is the enemy of of contentment. We learn contentment by being thankful for what we have. Contentment counts its blessings, but not just being thankful. This is, we tend to give thanks to God for all the good physical things in our lives. We need to learn to thank God for his even greater blessings, all the spiritual blessings that he has given to us now and that he has stored up for us in heaven. You you might be poor in this life, but you are abundantly rich in Jesus Christ. That's where you fix your gratitude, your thankfulness. But not only do we give thanks for all the ways that God has blessed us, we also give thanks for the ways that God is blessing other people. Do you understand? Coveting is about wanting what someone else has. Do you know how you can kill that? By turning that around and being thankful for the ways that God has blessed that other person, precisely at the point where you are coveting what they want. Instead of saying, I want that, you say, God, I am so thankful that you have given this gift to them. You're a a young woman, you're married, you don't have any kids, you really want to have kids. You're struggling with contentment because your friend is pregnant and you're not. You look at her and instead of coveting, you say, God, I'm so thankful that you blessed her with a baby. Thank you. So we don't just say thank you to God. We don't just practice gratitude for what God has done for us physically and spiritually, but also for what he's done in the lives of other people. That's how we learn contentment. Finally, be rich toward God. We see this in Luke 12, 13 through 21. This guy comes to Jesus and he says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, we don't know all the details of this story. We do know that Jesus could see his heart and he was struggling with coveting. So Jesus uses this as an opportunity to teach about coveting. Jesus said to the crowds, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's not what life is about. And to drive that home, he tells him a parable. There's a rich man and the land of the rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. 
And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Now, I think if we're honest with ourselves, for most of us, that sounds like a pretty good plan. Be honest. The man had all the world had to offer. He had all these goods and riches laid up for many years. And his plan was to enjoy it. Isn't that what most people in America are working for? If we're being honest, that sounds like a good plan. He's got all this time to enjoy all these things, or so he thought. God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And Jesus draws this conclusion, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. We learn a lot of things about this rich man in the parable. He was thankless. As a farmer, he should have known that everything he had was a gift from God and given thanks for it, but he didn't. He was selfish. Rather than thinking of blessing others with his extra, with his abundance, all he was thinking about is how he could keep it all for himself. He didn't see the things that he had as God's gifts for him to steward for the glory of God. He was self-indulgent. His Things were for his own pleasure to relax, eat, drink, be merry. And he was presumptuous thinking, I've got lots of time, lots of stuff and lots of time to enjoy all of this. He placed his security in his money instead of his maker. He lived as if life consisted in the abundance of his possessions. Now, if we're honest, we are more like him than unlike him. Jesus sums him up in a single word. He calls the man a fool. A fool because he was living for the wrong things. A fool because he didn't know God. He didn't thank God for his provision. He didn't ask God what he wanted him to do with the extra. He didn't live for God, but only thought how he could use his time, talents, and treasures for himself. He didn't consider God's control over his lifespan or the fact that he was going to have to give an account to God for how he lived. He was focused on himself and the present, and he gave no thought to God, to others, or to eternity. The application is clear. Don't be a fool. Don't live for this world and give no thought to God. Jesus sums this up. He says, such is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You want to learn contentment? You want to fight covetousness? This is how you learn it. You be rich toward God. Everything you have is a gift from God. So thank him for it. Ask God, how do you want me to spend your, my life How do you want me to spend my time and talents and treasures? Know that life is short. Eternity is long. You're going to give an account to God for how you live. So don't waste your life laying up treasures on earth. Lay up treasures in heaven. Are you living like life consists in the abundance of your possessions, your 401k, your retirement? True life consists in serving and finding satisfaction in Jesus Christ. That's where true contentment is found. It's being deeply satisfied in God and his will in all circumstances. 
Jesus goes on to say, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray. I want to invite you to pray along with me this morning. Heavenly Father, I confess my coveting, my covetous heart to you. I realize I am more like the rich fool than I am unlike him. I pray that you would forgive me for the ways that I have desired what others have for myself. Thank you for grace and forgiveness in your Son, Jesus Christ. I thank you for blessing me with true riches in Him, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God, help me be satisfied in Christ. God, help me be on guard against all covetousness and be content with what I have. Work in my heart a deep contentment, a deep satisfaction in you and your will in all circumstances. Strengthen my faith in your promises, God. I ask and pray this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen.